Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Over the last 26 weeks, I've been sharing audio chapters of my book, Media Unmade, the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. Today, we reach our final chapter. If you've been enjoying Media Unmade, the full version will soon be available to buy as an audio book. And if you haven't yet done so, please sign up for my regular industry newsletter, Unmade. You can get on the list at unmade.media. That's unmade.media. Now, on with the final chapter. Chapter 26 Deus Ex Machina, in which the government takes on the digital giants, which sees Facebook unfriend Australia before backing down as media companies get a deal that guarantees them hundreds of millions of dollars a year into the foreseeable future. Around the world, the attitude of politicians towards the digital behemoths had changed the knee-jerk glorification of Silicon Valley genius was replaced by a growing recognition that these companies have become too big and powerful and that their best interests did not automatically align with those of society. A founder's coding genius did not necessarily equate to a sophisticated understanding of what was best for the world. In the US... Google's digital dominance finally drew the attention of the authorities with three antitrust cases launched in rapid succession. In October 2020, the US Justice Department launched a lawsuit claiming that Google was using unfair competition to maintain its control of the search and advertising markets. Then in December, a second lawsuit was launched in Texas also attacking Google's stranglehold on the digital advertising market. And a third case launched a few days later, this time featuring more than 30 states, arguing that its search business was an illegal monopoly in the way it handled ads. In Australia, the dominance of Facebook and Google was undeniable. Audience measurement service Nielsen reported that at the end of 2020, Google was reaching a unique monthly audience of 19.998 million people in Australia, more than 95% of the online population. Facebook was just behind with a reach of 18.026 million. In a year that had seen its video conferencing software Teams come into its own, Microsoft was third with a 17.4 million reach. The traditional local players were 4th and 5th. News Corp's reach was 16.6 million, while 9 was on 15.7 million. In Australia, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission was the government's chosen weapon to confront the duopoly. The Digital Platforms Inquiry was announced in December 2017. It was commissioned by then-Treasurer Scott Morrison. 
he instructed the ACCC to examine the effect that digital search engines, social media platforms and other digital content aggregation platforms have on competition in media and advertising services markets. In particular, the impact of digital platforms on the supply of news and journalistic content and the implications of this for media content creators, advertisers and consumers. It would take more than three years for the ACCC to get to the sharp end. In January 2021, the ACCC released the preliminary findings of its exploration of the programmatic advertising chain. Google dominated the whole thing, the ACCC concluded. In the four stages of the chain, Google was dominant. In the servers where advertisers controlled their digital advertising campaigns, Google ran 80 to 90% of the technology. On the demand side platforms, where the brands ran their bidding for ad slots, Google had 70 to 80% of the technology in play. Within the supply side platforms, where digital advertising auctions take place, it ran 60 to 70% of the technology. And in publishers' ad servers, Google was behind 100% of the tech said the ACCC. There is a real lack of competition, choice and transparency in this industry, said ACCC Chair Rod Sims. These issues add to the cost of advertising for businesses, which will ultimately impact the prices paid by consumers. Google's significant presence across the whole ad tech supply chain, combined with its significant data advantage, means Google is likely to have the ability and the incentive to preference its own ad tech businesses in ways that affect competition. The interim report from the ACCC indicated it was considering new rules to manage conflicts of interest and prevent self-preferencing in the supply of ad tech services. The Commission also said that it was looking at forcing the breaking up of datasets held by large incumbents to make it easier for rival ad tech providers to enter and compete in the supply of ad tech services. The ACCC was due to publish its full recommendations in the second half of 2021. The Commission was also working on a more dramatic intervention. Lazy writers lean on the plot device of Deus Ex Machina, when the day is saved by an unexpected act of God. For the future funding of journalism in Australia, the ACCC delivered the deus ex machina moment in February 2021. Separate to the advertising chain inquiry, the ACCC looked at how Google and Facebook dealt with linking to content from Australian news publishers. News Corp proprietor Rupert Murdoch had argued for more than a decade that they should be paying for the privilege. Google argued that this was as illogical as asking somebody to recommend a good coffee shop and then the cafe sending them a bill when the customer arrived. The ACCC took News Corp's side and the rest of the publishers came along for the ride. Ruling that the publishers were being treated unfairly, the ACCC endorsed a controversial solution. It devised the News Media Bargaining Code. 
it would be a mandatory mechanism in which designated platforms, initially just Facebook and Google, would be ordered to pay publishers for the content they linked to. It was something that had never happened before during the development of the internet. The precedent would have been a massive one for Google and Facebook. If the principle was accepted in Australia, they feared global contagion. Facebook warned that rather than pay, it would stop users and publishers from sharing news content on its newsfeed. The boss of Google Australia, Mel Silver, appeared in front of Parliament's Economics Legislation Committee to warn that the search giant might leave the country. There are a number of scenarios we've been planning for at Google. The worst case scenario, which I have outlined, is the withdrawal of Google, she told the committee. Locally, Facebook and Google were losing the public relations battle. The reasonable argument that the publishers were actually the ones getting the value from the traffic sent their way was mostly discounted by politicians, both from the ruling coalition and also Labour. There were far more votes in helping the home team. The two digital giants were on soft ground. Years of sending most of their Australian revenue offshore to low taxation regimes meant they had not earned a social licence as good corporate citizens. The Australian Financial Review published research that showed that in 2019, Facebook paid just $13.5 million in tax on its local profits, while Google paid only $49 million. That was against revenues from Australia of $674 million and $5.2 billion, respectively. Until then, Google and Facebook had mostly kept the media companies at bay by throwing them the occasional bone. For instance, when Facebook launched a new product like the Facebook Watch video platform, they provided funding to incentivise the news companies to get involved. Previously, the company had done a similar thing to push take-up of its live videos. And the Google News initiative offered training and funding to support journalism. As far back as 2015, Google had paid for Fairfax Media to hire a data journalist as a Google News Lab fellow. Indeed, when we organised a Mumbrella media industry retreat for 40 or so media executives in a remote part of Tasmania in 2019, the Google News Initiative was the main sponsor. The term frenemy had become a cliché in describing the digital company's relationship with the analogue world, but for good reason. While media companies begrudged Google and Facebook for their ever-growing digital dollars, they also saw some of those dollars trickle back down in their direction. The moment when it became obvious that the tone was changing came at a conference organised by newspaper industry trade body News Media Works, held at the Ivy in Sydney, in September 2019. In the background, the ACCC's examination of the news ecosystem was well underway. I had been asked to moderate a panel featuring the four main local protagonists, Google, Facebook, Nine and News Corp. Kate Beddow, Google's Asia-Pacific Head of News, Web and Publishing Product Partnerships, and Andrew Hunter, Facebook's Head of News Partnerships, 
were the two representatives from the digital platforms. Their job was to be the link between their companies and the media owners, championing the importance of supporting journalism within their companies, but also helping publishers navigate the different internal fiefdoms of Google and Facebook. Both had similar backgrounds, having come up through Australia's local media companies. Nine sent one of its most assertive executives, Managing Director of Commercial Partnerships, Lizzie Young. The more understated Julian Delaney, Managing Director of News Corp's Digital Operations, was the fourth panellist. I had anticipated a relatively benign conversation about how the two sides could work together. The theme of the panel was supposed to be partnerships. Usually the role of the moderator is to try to push speakers away from polite platitudes to the real points of contention. This time there was no need. Young was fired up. Usually you would not hear a media company boss admit to failure but she was ready to lay on the line that Facebook's watch project had been a waste of time for nine. After Google's Beddo and Facebook's Hunter laid out the help they believed they were giving to publishers, I offered Young what I thought was a relatively softball question. Where do you see Facebook and Google as being good and helpful citizens? As I saw the stern expression on her face, I hastily added, if you do... Young swung back. So I hear everything about tech tools and best practice and innovation funding, and they are all fantastic. If they're on top of a long-term sustainable business model, whilst all the other things are great initiatives, we have to have longer-term sustainable underlying business models for this to really go to the next level and for local media companies to be able to get the value that we need to get out of the global platforms. If I look at Facebook, we've done the Facebook watch piece. We stood up a team to do a daily bulletin called Nine News Watch on Facebook with Sylvia Jeffries, one of our best talents. And at the end of the day, we're seeing watch time of 20 seconds. So that's not meaningful. I know it's an experiment, but we've got to get to the point where this can be more meaningful at a much quicker pace. Later in the discussion, Young would come back even harder foreshadowing the bargaining code between media companies and the digital platforms being mandatory rather than voluntary. It's fantasy to think that we don't need intervention and a code of conduct between the local media publishers and the global tech players, she told the audience. And the ability of Facebook to wipe out traffic with no warning was another issue, said Young. We haven't had significant algorithm changes on Facebook since... The last time we had significant algorithm changes, which we all found out about when we woke up one day and our traffic was gone. Unfriended. As the legislation crawled through Parliament, Google and Facebook began to realise that the news media bargaining code really would become law. Their biggest worry was that the law would oblige them to negotiate a price for links with the publishers, which would then set a global precedent. If they could not reach agreement, the parties would move to mandatory arbitration, in which each side would make their best offer, and the arbitrator would pick one rather than meeting in the middle. That risked big payouts. Google caved first. In 2021, it correctly concluded 
it was a shakedown on behalf of the local media, with the muscle being provided by the government and ACCC. The company realised that if it gave enough money to Australia's publishers, they would call off their friends in government and Google could avoid being designated under the code. And if it could give the money to the publishers for something other than paying for the right to link to their content, then it would be able to tell the rest of the world that it still did not pay for linking. The face-saving mechanism was Google News Showcase. News Showcase would provide curated news stories across a range of Google products. In February 2021, the company hurriedly launched it. The first publishers to sign a deal were among the smaller ones. Anthony Catalano's ACM, Eric Beecher's Private Media, Maurice Schwartz's Schwartz Media, the Adelaide-based Solstice Media and The Conversation. The publishers would be paid a set monthly fee for at least three years for their content to be featured on Google News Showcase. It was clear that, as a business product, Google News Showcase was half-arsed. Kate Bedder wrote a blog post saying, The initial publishers featured in today's launch were among the first globally to sign up, providing early feedback and input on how the product could help bring their journalism to the fore for readers. But those deals were not the main game. It became apparent that Australia's news media had, against expectations, found its way towards a long-term solution on the 15th of February. Seven West Media was the first of the big players to get a deal done with Google. While there was no official statement on price, speculation soon leaked that it was worth $30 million a year to Seven. Again, this deal was not officially about paying for links, but it was a big enough number that journalists' jobs looked safer than they had for years, even if Facebook hadn't yet come to the party. Seven West Media proprietor Kerry Stokes made clear where the enforcement had come from, issuing a statement saying, I'd like to thank Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the chair of the ACCC, Rod Sims, with particular recognition of Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who has been instrumental in the outcome of this groundbreaking agreement. Their outstanding leadership on the implementation of the proposed news media bargaining code has resulted in us being able to conclude negotiations that result in fair payment and ensure our digital future. The negotiations with Google recognise the value of quality and original journalism throughout the country, and in particular in regional areas. Behind the scenes, Google's Bedo and Facebook's Hunter were scrambling to lock in deals with the media owners. On the 17th of February, Nine signed its own letter of intent with Google to cover content from Nine's major newspapers, television, radio and digital assets. The exact number did not immediately emerge. The five-year deal was far more than $30 million per year and perhaps approaching $50 million. That night, the news media bargaining code cleared one of its final hurdles to become law, passing the House of Representatives. And, as in any movie thriller, there's always one more twist at the end of Act 3. This time, it came from Facebook. The next morning, Australia woke up to discover it had been unfriended. 
Facebook removed all the content from the pages of every news brand in the country. Newspapers, magazines, TV networks, radio stations, even lifestyle blogs were in the fray. For the smaller players who relied heavily on Facebook for traffic, it was potentially disastrous. If any individual user attempted to share a link to a news article on Facebook, they got an error message. Traffic to news sites plummeted. Will Easton, Facebook's local MD, explained in a blog post, The proposed law fundamentally misunderstands the relationship between our platform and publishers who use it to share news content. It has left us facing a stark choice, attempt to comply with a law that ignores the realities of this relationship, or stop allowing news content on our services in Australia. With a heavy heart, we are choosing the latter. Locally, Facebook faced a public relations firestorm. It was characterised as being a bully that thought it was above the law. It didn't help that the Facebook algorithm erroneously banned many non-news pages too, including government, health and weather information offerings. The argument that, now that the newsfeed had no news at all, conspiracy theorists would thrive all the more, was hard to refute. In the midst of a global health emergency, Facebook's commitment to journalism looked highly questionable. It was perhaps the biggest global technology story to have originated in Australia. This was intentional. The key audience for Facebook was legislators in other parts of the world who might think about a similar approach to Australia. But Facebook may not have been prepared for the scale of the international blowback. While the move was a signal to other countries to beware similar treatment if they attempted to implement something like the News Media Bargaining Code, regulators in both the US and UK said that Facebook had shown again that it was too powerful and needed greater regulation. Behind the scenes, Facebook came back to the table. Over five and a half days, there were a series of calls between Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and treasurer Josh Frydenberg. The government gave a little ground on the legislation. There will be extra steps before the final arbitration stage of the code. First, there will be three months of negotiation then two months of arbitration, before the final ruling. And the government would only designate the two platforms as being forced into the code if they had not shown willingness to negotiate with media companies. There was a new, shorter blog post from Easton on the 22nd of February. After further discussions, we are satisfied that the Australian government has agreed to a number of changes and guarantees that address our core concerns about allowing commercial deals that recognise the value our platform provides to publishers relative to the value we receive from them. As a result of these changes, we can now work to further our investment in public interest journalism and restore news on Facebook for Australians in the coming days. Once again, Seven West Media was the first of the big players to announce a deal this time with Facebook. Hours after the backflip, there was another press release from Kerry Stokes. The establishment of this new partnership with Facebook is a significant move for our business and reflects the value of our original news content across our successful metropolitan and regional broadcast, digital and print properties. 
Nines and News Corp's conversations with Facebook dragged on. The publishers began to ask, could Zuckerberg have offered an empty promise to Frydenberg in order to get the government to water down the arbitration rules? On the 16th of March, the final piece fell into place. Facebook agreed deals with Nine and News Corp. Like Google Showcase, Facebook was going to launch a new News tab, which would be its fig leaf to argue it was not paying to link. In the space of little more than a month, Google and Facebook had agreed to spend something like $250 million per year on subsidising Australian news. The deus ex machina moment had arrived. Robert Thompson, global CEO of News Corp, signalled a truce in the company's decade-long war with Facebook. A former editor with a love of alliteration, Thompson underlined the significance of the moment in his statement. The agreement with Facebook is a landmark in transforming the terms of trade for journalism and will have a material and meaningful impact on our Australian news businesses. Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch led a global debate while others in our industry were silent or supine as digital dysfunctionality threatened to turn journalism into a mendicant order. This digital denouement has been more than a decade in the making. It was an outcome that said everything about the Australian media. It was a grubby, imperfect deal that had involved the Australian government running a shakedown on big tech. Nobody came out of it with their purity intact. But somehow, for the first time in more than a decade, Australian journalism once more had a guaranteed long-term income stream to support it for the foreseeable future. Epilogue Wednesday the 3rd of March 2021 is shaping up to be a big day in the media. In Perth, the Liberal Cabinet Minister at the centre of historic rape allegations is a few hours away from formally identifying himself. For the last couple of days, Attorney General Christian Porter's name has been trending on Twitter. He is the man named in a letter to Prime Minister Scott Morrison as the alleged rapist of a woman who has since died by suicide. Later today, Porter will tearfully deny the allegations, which are now putting the ABC's controversial Four Corners episode about the Canberra bubble in a whole new light. In Sydney, the staff of Nine are about to find out the identity of their new boss. At 8.41am, not long after arriving for work at Mumbrella's office in North Sydney, I receive a short text message. Check your email, final chapter of your book. In my inbox is a message headed, Nine Corporate Media Event. It begins, The Honourable Peter Costello, Chairman of Nine, would like to invite you to a media event to be held today. It's taking place at Nine's new headquarters in little more than an hour. Nine completed the move from its rabbit warren of studios at Willoughby just a few months ago. For the first time, the newspaper staff and the TV teams are in the same building, a dark glass tower at 1 Denison Street in North Sydney. The event will take place in Studio A, the high-tech ground-floor studio originally intended for Nine's morning shows. 
COVID protocols changed that plan. Instead, back in November 2020, Today and Today Extra moved from Willoughby into the slightly smaller Studios B and C up on the first floor next to the Nine newsroom. Studio A has become the new home for live broadcasts from Stan Sport. Mike Sneesby, the CEO of Nine streaming service Stan, shook up the market again in November 2020 when he announced a move into the competitive world of streamed subscription sport, creating another competitor for Foxtel's KO and Optus Sport. The new Nine headquarters has the infrastructure to cope. Upstairs on level three, there are four separate control rooms, meaning the network can broadcast four live productions from Sydney simultaneously. They're the first in the country to be entirely computer-driven. Today, one of those live shows will be the announcement of Nine's new boss, streamed for staff across the company, as well as journalists who can't get to the press conference in time. With Mumbrella's office just five minutes' walk from the Nine building, I'm one of the first to arrive. Covid appears to be in the rear-view mirror. Last time I entered Nine's reception, there were temperature checks before being allowed in the building. This time, the protocols are more relaxed. I'm instructed to wait outside a pair of double-height doors with a large A stenciled on them. The right-hand door is propped open, while a hand sanitizer dispenser stands ignored in front of the other one. Beside the door, an on-air sign pulses on and off in red. Over the past few weeks, the field for Hugh Marx's successor had narrowed to three. And last week, the board made its final choice for what is now the biggest job in Australian media. Since then, they've been doing the paperwork ahead of an announcement. There was one external candidate among the three, Carl Fennessy. The co-CEOs of Endemol Shine Australia, Carl and Mark Fennessy, quit the production giant back in September 2020. Over 10 years, they had turned it into a TV powerhouse with a slate of hit shows across all three of the commercial networks, including Lego Masters, MasterChef, Big Brother, Gogglebox, Australian Survivor and Married at First Sight. And, of course, back in 2012, The Voice started Nine's turnaround. Carl Fennessy's background running a TV production company is similar to that of Hugh Marks, who had run Southern Star Group before taking charge at Nine. The board of Nine whittled down its strong field of internal candidates until there were just two, Mike Sneesby and Chief Publishing and Digital Officer Chris Jans. Sneesby's calling card was Stan, and Jans could point to the surprising resilience of the company's newspapers along with more recently delivering a healthy boost to the bottom line, thanks to the news media bargaining code negotiations. None of the trio has all of the experience they will require to run the country's most complex multimedia organisation. The only man to have done that in Australia is Hugh Marks himself. Fennessy is strong on TV production, but has had no exposure to the news business. Sneesby is a master of technology and content rights, but has had little to do with analogue TV. And Jans has run publishing businesses, but not had much to do with broadcast television. Seven days ago, 
Marx presented his final set of financial results as CEO, finishing on a high. Despite the challenges of COVID, the company reported a half-year profit of $181.9 million, up 79% on the same time a year before. That day, just before the market closed, the share price blipped upwards. For the first time in the company's history, its market capitalization rose above $5 billion. As I hover outside Studio A, two women carrying makeup kits bustle out. Most likely they've been getting Costello and the new CEO camera ready. I peek through the open door to see if I can get a glimpse. There's a buzz of preparations, but no sign of Costello and the anointed one, whoever he might be. Half of the studio is hidden by a black curtain. Other journalists begin to arrive. The Australian Financial Review's media writer, Miranda Ward, enters, fanning her face. I assume it's to cool down after a race across town until I check the Australian Financial Review app on my phone and realise she was winning the race to file. She's got the scoop. It's Sneezeby. A couple of minutes later, my ASX app pings, confirming the news. Sneezeby will take the top job from the 1st of April. He'll be on a salary of $1.4 million per year, with a short-term performance bonus of up to $1.75 million, says the announcement. As we wait to go in, I check the other news websites. You could not suggest the Sydney Morning Herald lacks independence from its owner, Nine. It contains an unhelpful column from Elizabeth Knight with the headline, Corporate Game of Thrones, Nine's fractured board belies its booming business. Knight's analysis suggests that divisions that first came to light with the resignation of Marx have opened along the fault lines of the pre-merger Fairfax and Nine boards. There had been three Fairfax board members who came across in the takeover. Deputy Chairman Nick Falloon, the recipient of Anthony Catalano's blunt computer lesson, Patrick Alloway and Mickey Rosen. Two days ago, the Sydney Morning Herald's Zoe Samios had revealed that Falloon was facing an internal investigation over his son's use of a corporate golf club membership paid for by online property group Domain. Nine is the majority owner of Domain and Falloon its chairman. The timing of Monday's leak is unlikely to have been a coincidence. Falloon's future hopes of succeeding Costello as chairman of Nine now look faint. And on Monday night, Alloway had resigned, citing his increased duties as the new chairman of Bank of Queensland. We're called into Studio A. It's brightly lit, with harsh barn door lights mounted high on the ceiling, throwing white light into every corner. There are four rows of audience seats, with every other one blocked off with crosses of red tape to ensure social distancing. I grab a place in the front row. On the low stage in front is a curved television news desk decorated with Nine's iconic logo, white on blue. The reflection of the Nine dots shimmers on the polished floor of the studio. There are two glass tumblers of water on the news desk and a pair of empty stools behind it. A bank of three large studio cameras are lined up next to each other with their operators standing nearby wearing headsets. Pop music plays softly in the background. 
Nine's head of corporate affairs, Nick Christensen, the former Mumbrella staffer who brought in the scoop about the Kyle and Jackie O Kiss rebrand back in 2013, hands out copies of a press release with Sneezeby's biographical details. Most of the journalists sit with heads down reading the info. Three news photographers find spaces between the banks of chairs. Near the door, James Chessel, executive editor of the company's newspapers, leans against a wall, talking to Chief Information and Technology Officer Damien Cronin. The brains behind Stan's flawless launch in 2015 and the blue team's crucial rebuilding of Fairfax's publishing platforms in 2017, Cronin is the most casually dressed person in the studio, in jeans, sneakers and t-shirt. Channel 9 Entertainment editor Richard Wilkins, standing just in front of them, is among the smartest, having just come off air. Just after 10am, Costello and Sneesby emerge at the back of the room from behind the curtain. Costello walks around to the left of the desk, Sneesby the right, and they sit down. They're already wearing microphones on their lapels. Both men are wearing dark suits and light shirts. Costello is more formally dressed, with shiny shoes, a blue and grey tartan patterned tie and an Order of Australia stud on his lapel. His hair is beginning to thin. Sneesby is wearing R.M. Williams boots and has opted not to wear a tie. His greying hair is swept back, held in place by whatever product the nine hair and makeup team unleashed upon it. The room falls silent as Costello waits for the live stream to begin. He gets the nod and starts. Today, the Nine Entertainment Corporation announces the appointment of our new CEO, Mike Sneesby, who will take up that position on the 1st of April with the retirement of Hugh Marks. The floor manager interrupts. The live stream had not started after all. The room stays silent as Costello waits for the instruction to go again. This time it works. Costello occasionally glances down at his notes as he harks back to last week's strong financial results. Mike has had a distinguished part of that story. Mike was the original founder, CEO of Stan, our streaming service. It's been enormously successful, with over 2.3 million subscribers and a market valuation of about a billion dollars. If this were a company in America, they'd call it a unicorn, a startup that's valued at a billion dollars. Costello continues by paying tribute to Hugh Marks. Surprisingly, Marks is not in the room for the handover. When Hugh came on board as our CEO, we were a legacy television business. Our market capitalisation was about $1.3 billion. Today, we're in all sorts of new platforms and we're more like a $5 billion corporation. We've become Australia's premier Australian-owned media company. We're looking forward to the next era of the Nine story. He hands over to Sneesby, who speaks clearly, without looking down at his notes. He too acknowledges the strong set of numbers delivered by Marx. Underneath these results is a direct reflection of the content and the journalism that is created within this organisation. We've got Australia's best content creators and Australia's best journalists, and that underpins our financial result. Glancing towards Costello, who smiles back at him, Sneesby adds, I'm extremely proud to be taking on this role. Costello turns towards the small audience. 
Questions? I get my hand up first and catch his eye. A boom microphone swings towards me. Mike, congratulations on the new role, I say. I read in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning that the board is currently fractured. I can't think of many examples where a CEO has succeeded unless they've had the support of a united board. So I'm wondering what sort of support you hope to receive from the board of nine. Costello intercedes. I'll answer that question. The board is not fractured and the board is totally behind Mike Sneesby. This is a decision of the board and he will have every support of the board. Later, he adds, I want to make this clear. There is only one corporation here. It's the Nine Entertainment Corporation. Every person is a director of that corporation. There aren't two corporations. There's one corporation and we all owe our obligations to the shareholders of that corporation as directors of the board and, of course, to the employees. During the short press conference, Sneesby addresses the shortfall in his resume that he's had little to do with running news companies. I've had a career that spanned a number of different areas of media. This organisation now is a very diverse media organisation. I don't think there's an executive out there, probably apart from Hugh Marks, who has led this organisation, who's led a company with the diversity of media assets that we have here. So it doesn't surprise me that people may say that your forte is here or your forte is there. The commitment that I make to the staff and to the board is that I will be across all areas of the business. I'll make sure that I understand the people in the business and we get the best outcomes for our people in the business. Then comes a surprise. Why is Mr Marks not here today? Asks the Australian Financial Reviews Ward. I spoke to Mr Marks this morning, reveals Costello. He's in hospital. He has an infection. He's being tested for that infection and he's been in hospital for several days. The formalities last just 22 minutes with former Federal Treasurer Costello batting away more questions about boardroom divisions and also about the rape allegation rocking his party. Costello ended up answering more questions than Sneesby. Afterwards, the journalist asked to leave, while Costello and Sneesby come around the desk to pose for photographs. Costello stumbles at the edge of the stage in front of the desk and only just stops himself from falling. The photographers ask for solo pictures of Sneesby, who's looking pensive. As I leave Studio A, the last words I hear are instructions trilled across the room from Nine's Director of Communications and Public Relations, Victoria Buckham. Happy, Mike. Happy. In the end, it comes down to leopards. Do leopards change their spots? And did those who wanted things to stay as they were heed the advice from the leopard, quoted by Mark Scott, and accept that things needed to change? Certainly Scott changed his spots. After the ABC... He went on to become Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education. And then in 2021, he was appointed Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney. So too did Nine Chairman Peter Costello. Who would have thought at the start of the decade that by the end of it, the former politician would be responsible for protecting the independence of some of the newspapers that had been most critical of him as Treasurer? 
or indeed that the sometimes haughty journalists of the age in the Sydney Morning Herald would find themselves in the same stable as the Nine Network, home of downmarket fare like Married at First Sight and A Current Affair, or indeed that Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Scotty for marketing, better known for dodging questions than accepting media scrutiny, would be the person to provide the news media a lifeline with his government-sanctioned shakedown of Google and Facebook. In 2006, not long after arriving in Australia, I covered a conference speech from the man who was then Australia's most powerful media agency buyer, Harold Mitchell. Asked about the coming digital disruption, he shared the view that the existing media players would emerge as the winners. This was nonsense, I wrote at the time. Much like my intimidating trip into News Limited boss John Hardigan's lair, Mitchell invited me into his wood-panelled office near Sydney Town Hall. He challenged my views from behind a giant desk, interrupting each sentence halfway with the word interesting and another question, while his son Stuart and his PR staffer sat silently beside him. It turns out Harold was more right than wrong. For the most part, one of the stories of the decade has been that of the media owners, or of the ones that survived anyway, getting it right just in the nick of time. News Corp's laser focus on paywalls. Nine's drive into subscription streaming with Stan. Fairfax's last-ditch unmaking and remaking of its printed newspaper business model. Individuals made a difference too. The media pivoted on a series of people moments. What if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't built a website to rank hot Harvard students? Would News Corp's MySpace have then prevailed? Could Rupert Murdoch have become as dominant in social media as he was in traditional media? What if David Gingell hadn't returned to Nine and the company had instead fallen into administration? Or what if his successor, Hugh Marks, had agreed with his chief financial officer that it was indeed time to manage for decline. What if seven proprietor Kerry Stokes had accepted Nine's invitation to be a part of Stan? What if Greg Highwood had not returned to Fairfax? If the company had promoted someone from within, would that person have had the steel to perform the painful surgery necessary to save the patient? What if Isentia had missed out in the auction for King Content? Would CEO John Kroll have been able to stick around and achieve his aim of turning it into a billion-dollar company? Would he have been better placed than his successor to weather 2020's triple storm of COVID, a ransomware attack and the rise of new rival Stream that left the company with a market capitalization of less than $20 million? What if Alex Malley hadn't written that pompous column spotted by the Australian Financial Review's Joe Aston? Would he still be a poster child for content marketing? Or would somebody else have spotted that the emperor was naked? What if Kyle Sanderlands hadn't got stoned and rung his old boss? Would Australian radio networks risk-taking Kieran Davis have found another way to come from behind and overtake Southern Cross Stereo? What if the ABC board had not been bedazzled by the Google entry on Michelle Guthrie's resume and hired somebody better equipped to lead the country's most culturally important organisation at the time of its greatest challenge? What if Yvonne Bauer 
had decided Australia was too far away to buy a magazine company. The future of the media will be about technology, but the strategy will be set by the clever, flawed, passionate, arrogant, entertaining humans who run the media. Their flaws, as much as their brilliance, also determines outcomes. What if David Leckie had had the humility to get out of the way for James Warburton? Or what if Fairfax management had not been so keen to get Anthony Catalano out of the door? The future will soon be in the hands of the next generation. In 2020, Kerry Stokes turned 80, with son Ryan taking on ever more responsibility. Wynn Corporation owner Bruce Gordon turned 92. Andrew Gordon is moving up. And for 90-year-old Rupert Murdoch, a much more complex family succession dynamic was already unfolding. So what next? Making predictions about the media is a mugs game. Futurists rarely get it right. Remember the newspaper extinction timeline? In 2010, our shelves were full of DVD box sets and expensive CDs. Our phones were mostly incapable of streaming TV shows, not that there was much available anyway. Back then, the ads we saw online weren't full of doorknobs because of that DIY search we did a fortnight ago. The traditional media, or at least the ones that keep evolving, will play a part. And, ever increasingly, so too will the big four. Not just Facebook and Google, but Amazon and Apple, as they become media and search players too. The calls for them to be broken up will only get louder. But that sounds dangerously like a prediction. Only one thing is actually certain. If we want things to remain the same, things will have to change. That was the final chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. And soon the audiobook will be for sale too. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you're not signed up for my industry newsletter, you can find that at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Media Unmade was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast was produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and sound design, for corporate videos, digital content, commercials and podcasts, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'm Tim Burrows. I'll be back soon. Toodle pip. <laughs>